Amen. We are going to be continuing in our series on 2 Corinthians, a letter that I've just loved taking time with and, and seeing what God has said to his church then and now through Paul's pen or quill. Uh, and so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to be in the first six verses. And this is a really fascinating part of the letter. And before we dive into 2 Corinthians 10, the first six verses, I want to reiterate some of the background that we looked at back in week one when we began this series. Keep in mind that one of the problems in the church in Corinth between these two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, is the presence of false teachers who they've allowed to kind of have undue influence and sway in the church and not really done anything about. And so the problem's gotten a little bit better from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians. You're seeing more of the church come around and repent and return to the truth. But keep that context in mind because uh, we're going to hear Paul refer to they and them. And so he's talking about those people who had caused problems for the church. Um, but if you will, if you are physically able, please stand as we read Scripture in, in respect for the Lord. I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it, the timeless truth of it, that you have given us this gift. Uh, may we not just think of it as a gift, but remember that you refer to it as a sword. And so may we allow it to cut away the parts of us that need cut away. Lord, refine us. Purify us. Cleanse your bride. Make us presentable for Jesus. May he be glorified in this time as we continue to worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So what do we see first? We see an invaluable invaluable lesson for the church and the individual Christian in those first two verses. And it's a, it's a balance that is very hard to strike, especially in the heated context of many of today's conversations. But we see this incredible biblical tension. I don't mean tension is in a bad thing, but tension is in, you know, wanting to honor two things that at first glance seem opposed. See, when we think of tension, we tend to think of, you know, pulling in the opposite direction. But what we look at when we look at scriptures, we see these two things that maybe at first glance seem to be opposites. We find that they're actually married together perfectly in the person of Jesus. So let's reread those first two verses and look at what do we see about Christians, about the Christian life. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Christians should not seek conflict. Scripture says we should be peacemakers. 
people who are actively investing our time and efforts into producing peace. What did we look at last week? Those who sow peace reap righteousness. So we should not be actively seeking conflict. We should not be picking the fights. We should not be trying to spark the problems and the tensions and the disagreements. What does he say? He says, I entreat you with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, I beg you, I don't want to have to do this. But meekness is not the absence of conviction. Gentleness is not the absence of power. Has anyone ever held a baby? Ever held a baby? Who was stronger? You were that baby. Hopefully you. But I'm willing to bet you were pretty gentle with that newborn baby. Would anyone look at that and be like, oh man, look at that you know, parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle. Like, look at them holding that baby. Wow, they're so weak. No, gentleness is not the absence of strength. Meekness is not the absence of conviction. It's the heart that desires peace. It's the heart that desires unity. It's the heart that desires joy and togetherness and fellowship. And Paul says, I do this to imitate Christ. But then what does he say? He's like, but I'm counting on being bold. He says, I don't want to have to do it. What does he say? He says, I entreat you, I urge you, don't make me do this. But I'm fully ready to be bold. And be bold in what? In confronting false teachers, in confronting falsehood. Would you describe Jesus as timid and afraid of confronting a lie? No, and so the Christian, we should not seek conflict, but we cannot be unwilling and afraid of confronting falsehood. We must be prepared to be the meekness and gentleness of Christ and be prepared to be the boldness and the truth of Christ. And if this is going to happen, okay, I'm not afraid of this. What do we see in Scripture with this idea? Earlier when he wrote to the same church in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And what's he say about this? He says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. See, Paul had to call out the church for, in the name of tolerance and unity and love, like, okay, well, we're just going to turn a blind eye to the problem. And Paul said, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, like, you're arrogant about this? No, you should be grieving that you have such a tolerance for sin in your midst. You need to confront this and do something about it. What do we see in Galatians? This is Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in a couple verses in Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5, and then 11 to 13. Listen to what he says. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out. So this is a different church. This is a different church still, still dealing with the same problem of false teachers. Secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved among you. This is the same Paul who's like, look, I love the Galatians. I love the church in Galatia. But the false teachers, no, we didn't yield an inch. We confronted and dealt with it. Jump down to 11 and 13. And then he's even talking about Peter. He says, but when Cephas, Peter, another name for Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, that's the consequence of tolerating untruth, is it leads people in the wrong direction. And so Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he's like, no, it's not good to just, okay, well, fine, we'll let the sin be here. Because that's what gentleness means. Like, he's like, no, confront it. Galatia says, I confronted it. You need to confront it. We need to deal with this. Never setting aside the love of Christ. Never setting aside the compassion of Christ. Never setting aside the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. But also never compromising on the truth of Christ. Consider 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This is the qualifications of elders. Hey, if you are going to serve in the highest office in the church, if you are going to lead the church, you cannot be quarrelsome. You cannot be argumentative. You cannot pick the fight. You must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. What's this next word? Correcting his opponents. Not tolerating the untruth. Not stomaching it. Not saying, okay, well, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and, you know, cool. No, correcting his opponents. Yeah, I like that. That's why I got up in their face and yelled. Now, let's finish the verse. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. See, it's never one without the other. It's never a division of who Christ is. It's never a separation of who Jesus is. Paul says, I approach you with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, fully prepared and counting on confronting the lie. And so this must be where the Christian and the church finds itself today if we are going to line up under the authority of Scripture, if we are going to submit to the Lord, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and willing to confront it when we must. How do we do that? Anybody remember our very first taco talk that we did? Hey, my wife, good. <laughs> Excellent. What was our first taco talk on? Spiritual warfare. So if you were at that taco talk, it was almost a four-hour conversation. And it was based off a lot of this passage. And so I hope none of you have lunch plans, because we've got four hours ahead of us. <laughs> no. What we're going to do now is we're going to look at Scripture, and we're going to look at, so with this idea of meekness and gentleness confronting falsehood, this idea of spiritual warfare, the reality of the world we find ourselves in, the reality we find ourselves in as a church, we're going to be looking at a macro view of this. If this is something that interests you, if this is something you've heard about, you've had questions about, you want to know more about, reach out to me. I have so much material and stuff on this. We can have some great conversations as we look at what God's Word really says. But let's go back to 2 Corinthians. With this idea of meekness and gentleness, prepared to confront false teachers, what does he go on to describe that as? This is verses 3 and 4. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That sounds like a weapon I want to wield. I don't know about you, but I would rather destroy a stronghold than have it destroy me. So I want to make sure I'm wielding this holy weapon correctly and accurately. In order to do that, I need to know what weapon am I called to wield. If it is divine power, I want to be familiar with this. So we cannot allow people's stories, we cannot allow, right, like we, can't, we cannot allow anything other than God and God and His Word to define what this is for us. 
So when he says we have weapons, divine weapons to wield, what is he talking about? Well, what's Scripture say? Ephesians 6, 16 to 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So wield, to take up, to pick up and use, right? Like, I am wielding the clicker. So what do you take up in your hands in this passage on warfare and battle armor? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is what we fight with. We fight with faith and we fight with truth. We use the shield of faith to what? Extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy so the lies of the enemy, the attacks of the enemy, we extinguish with faith. Faith in what? Faith in who God is. What does it say? Why? What's, what's in the middle of the shield and the sword? The helmet of salvation. So as it's guarding our minds, as it's protecting us, we extinguish his attacks with faith that God is truth, and therefore what he has said is truth, and we can stand firm in that. We can anchor ourselves as we defend ourselves with the faith that God is who he said he is. He will do what he has said he will do, and we are with him, and he is with us. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What is one of the most famous confrontations with evil in the Bible? I mean, we're talking about the two biggest names, Jesus and the devil. When the devil tempts him in the wilderness, and the devil does what? He quotes scripture to Jesus. A.W. Tozer one time said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us, and the devil still. The devil quotes scripture to Jesus to try and lead him astray, to try and tempt him, to try and lie to him. And how does Jesus respond? Does Jesus say, I bind you and I lose protection? Does Jesus say, I raise up a thorn wall around me? No, Jesus responds with scripture. Jesus wields scripture right back and cuts him down. Jesus fought back against lies with truth, with God's word. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. I'm pretty confident, and when I say pretty, I mean a billion percent, that Jesus is way better at this than I am. And infinitely wise, omniscient. When we use that word omniscient, we're talking about infinite wisdom. And so if Jesus in his infinite wisdom fights back with Scripture, then you and I need to fight back with Scripture. What else does Scripture say about our weapon? Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What do we fight with? What are these divine weapons that we wield? God's word. We grab the shield of faith. We say, I believe God. I take him at his word. And then we fight back with that word he gave us. What would you say to a soldier, not a modern soldier? You could use a modern soldier if you want. I mean, let's go back to, you know, Roman days when it was a shield and sword. What would you say to a soldier who goes running out on the battlefield? They're equipped. They've got their shield and their sword. And you're standing next to him, you're fighting next to him, right? And the enemy's coming, and they just stand there. And then they get stabbed. Is your first thought not going to be, dude, why didn't you raise the shield? Right? And then they're like, well, I didn't have anything to fight with. Well, did you bring your sword? Yeah, well, where was it? It was in the scabbard. You know, I just, I left it right there. But I had it with me. No, the weapon, you have to wield it to be effective with it. What helps with that? 
practice, training. I mean, why do, now let's go into modern military, right? Why do we have boot camp? To train our soldiers how to fight. To train them how to be soldiers. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it enough that we say, well, I've got the weapons with me. Okay, great. Are you using them? Do you know how to use them? Are you working towards knowing how to use them better? Are you prepared to fight? When the attack comes, are you ready to defend? When the attack comes, are you ready to counterattack? Are you ready to push back? Are you ready to wield the weapons that Paul says he wields to destroy strongholds? This is the call of the church. This is the call of the individual believer. So this must be something that we take seriously in our own lives. You think it helps a soldier? Well, why'd you die? Well, I didn't know how to fight. But I was standing next to someone who did. No. Like, it's not just through osmosis. You've got to know how to fight, and you've got to be ready to fight. And so if we take in personal ownership... What is the cultural vision for this church that we have talked about year after year, time after time, a relentless pursuit? Why? Because when we look at Scripture, we see that we are called to a relentless pursuit of holiness, of increasing sanctification. Make every effort to grow in these things, to know how to use the Word, to be ready to stand on it. So if we take in personal ownership of it in our own lives so that we can wield these weapons effectively in this battle, in this war. And then he's go, he goes on and he says... To destroy strongholds, that raises, at least for me, a very natural, logical question of what's a stronghold. I've heard a lot of speculation about what these spiritual strongholds are. I've heard a lot of thoughts, read books, listened to podcasts about what are the spiritual strongholds. So when you hear, hey, you have a weapon to wield to destroy strongholds, okay, what should you be doing then? Like, what should we be out doing? Well, what's Scripture say these strongholds are? To understand this, what does God say in this passage? Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 10. What are they? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. That's pretty straightforward. Who, who knows the definition of an argument? Who knows the definition of an opinion? Like These are concepts that we're familiar with as adults. So scripture says these are the strongholds that we destroy, which goes back to why? Why are we fighting? How are we fighting against these strongholds? With truth. So what does truth destroy? Just apply logic. Truth destroys a lie. Truth destroys a falsehood. So the strongholds that we are called to engage in in this war are the false opinions, the false thoughts, the truth twisted to become a lie, twisted to become deceit, twisted to lead people astray. What did Paul confront when Cephas came to Antioch? Hypocrisy, untruth that did what? It led others astray, even Barnabas. This is how we fight. And to understand this, really, let's take a big picture view. Let's take a macro look at this. As we understand our war today in the context of the war of the church for Corinth, in context of the war for God's people from the very beginning. So let's take a big picture view at what Scripture is talking about when it talks about weapons, when it talks about destroying, when it talks about this fight. What was Satan's trajectory? What was Satan's path that led him to fall? It was the sin of pride that led him to reject God's truth. You realize the Bible tells us how this happened? 
Like, we know Satan exists and we know he fell, but Scripture lays out what that looked like. Consider these verses. This is Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Consider Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground and exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. What's it say in 1 Timothy 3.6? Talking about people qualified to lead the qualifications of an elder. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and what? And fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it begins with the devil trading his righteousness for unrighteousness. What does it say? Till unrighteousness was found in you and in your conceit, in your pride, in your arrogance, you desired to supplant God's truth. You rejected God's truth and you fell. This is who our enemy has been from the beginning. So in that, in his arrogance of rejection of truth, what was his opening attack? What's he say in Genesis 3? Did God really say? Genesis 3, 1 to 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. His opening attack was to go after what God defined as truth and twist it and seek to lead people to reject it or doubt it or ignore it or cast it aside or believe that they know better than it. His tactics have not changed. His tactics have not changed from the start. He is still saying to God's people, did God really say and his people throughout time have said, oh, maybe, I don't know. 
And so Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, this group of believers who were arrogant. What do you say in 1 Corinthians 5? You are arrogant about the very thing that you should be confronting. You are arrogant about your acceptance of a falsehood. You are arrogant about your acceptance of this sin of these false teachers, and you ought to be confronting it and dealing with it. It goes back to what has been going on since the beginning. God is truth. That's who he is. We looked at that as one of his names, that he is truth. He is the perfection, the holiness of truth. So the attacks against him are by nature lies. Scripture says the the devil is the father of all lies. We're going to look at this more in a few weeks. As we continue through the series in Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we're going to get a little bit more into what that looks like. But this is who God is, truth. This is who the enemy is, lies. And so, of course, the war that is raging is truth versus lies. So, of course, when we actually look at Scripture and see what God talks about, we realize that the weapons to engage in a war of truth and lies are truth to defend against and cut down the lies. Does a plumber, when a plumber shows up at your house to fix the project, hey, this is leaking, the pipe busted, you know, do they have masonry tools with them? Do they show up with, hey, here's my bag of concrete and a trowel, and the guy trying to build the brick wall is out there with a pipe wrench? No, you use the tools for the trade. You use the tools to deal with the problem at hand. So if the problem is lies assaulting truth, then we have to respond with truth to cut down the lies. This is what Paul lays out for the church in Corinth. This is what's laid out in the arc of Scripture start to finish. And so if we go back and consider the whole of this passage in light of the macro view that Scripture takes with war, with the fight that we're all engaged in, we see what Paul is getting at. Let's go back and reread 2 Corinthians 10, 1-6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We are part of a spiritual war over truth. And so therefore, we fight with the weapons that God has designed, faith and truth, and we use that truth to destroy the enemy's strongholds of false thoughts, of disobedient thoughts. We take them confident, or co- okay, pause, reset. We take them captive, confidently to obey Christ. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. What's he say? He says we don't wage war according to the flesh. So we have to ask ourselves, is our approach in this life determined more by the flesh and other people, or is it determined by what the Holy Lord on His throne said is true? Has the church fallen for a faint, for a misdirection? I've shared these statistics before. 
These are the worst. But we need to be aware of these statistics. The Ligonier, Ligonier Ministry, every two years, does a state of theology in the church. This is not a survey about what non-Christians think. This is not a survey about what other religions think. This is not a survey about what atheists think. This is a survey about what those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, the evangelical church in America, this is a survey about what the evangelical church believes. Here's what they found in 2022. 48% of evangelicals say that God changes and is not omniscient. 48%. I mean, look at this room. Half, and I don't think it's true of this room, but imagine if half of the people, you're talking to your brother or sister in, in Christ at church, you know, and you're like, isn't it great that God's always the same? And they're like, well, he's really not. He's got to learn stuff because he doesn't know everything. 48% of evangelical Christians say that God changes and is not omniscient. 55% of evangelicals say everyone is born innocent. 56% of evangelicals say worship of all religions is pleasing to God and accepted by Him. It's all true, just a different flavor to it. And that's increased over their studies. I'm sorry, it was 65% of evangelicals say everyone's born innocent. 43% of evangelicals say Jesus was not God. 26% of evangelicals say the Bible contains helpful information, but it's not literally true. It's just, it's a good book. They say, 26% say the Bible is the same as any other religious text out there. You know, some interesting social commentary, helpful principles. But it's not truth. It's just a historic document. 38% of evangelicals say religion is personal preference. It is not about objective truth. 38% of evangelicals say that it is not about objective truth. Try and tell me that this war is not a battle over truth. And we are so caught up in everything other than raising one another up to stand firm with the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to fight. And so we have to recognize that this war that we're in, God has laid out the weapons. He's laid out the charge. He's laid out the task. He's laid out the call. Hey, be meek. Be gentle. Be patient. Be kind to everyone. Don't be quarrelsome. You, we, you and I, we, don't, can't, we can't set that aside. What the scriptures say? Speak the truth in love. So I can't say, well, hey, I was obnoxious and a jerk, but I was truthful. No, I'm called to be meek and gentle and kind and compassionate, and so are you. We are also called to confront the falsehood with boldness, to stand firm, to fight, to wield the weapons we've been given to destroy strongholds. Wow, this sounds really hard. Wow, this sounds like a lot. I'm not that educated. I'm not that young. I don't have a great memory. I have all these reasons why I'm not going to make a good soldier. I have all these reasons, all these logical things in my mind that tells me I'm not going to be effective in this fight. What did we say was one of the underlying themes of, of this letter, of 2 Corinthians? The sufficiency of God in all things. What did we say was one of the underlying themes that ties together this whole letter of 2 Corinthians? The power of God in all things. The power of the Holy Spirit in leading His people. 
So now as we're considering this idea, this idea of scripture, this idea of war, this idea of truth and faith and standing firm with boldness, tempered with meekness and gentleness, and we're saying, man, that seems like too big for me, don't forget the themes of 2 Corinthians. Don't forget the themes, the lessons, the constant reminders of the power of the Lord in this. And then consider it in light of all of Scripture and realize that even in this very specific instance, this very specific detail of fighting in a war for truth with Scripture, with all the excuses we're tempted to give, what else did God say about His people fighting in this war? Let's go to John 15 and John 16. John 15, 26, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus also talking about the Holy Spirit says, He will recall for you, he will call to mind the things you have heard and received. So when we say, my memory's not good enough, guess what? The Holy Spirit's is. Because it's omniscient. His not, the Holy Spirit is not an it. Let's be very clear. The Holy Spirit is a he. Him. His memory, his knowledge is omniscient. So when we say, I can't call these things to mind, I can't wield them, I don't know them, I don't understand them, Jesus says, no, the Holy Spirit will remind you of what you've heard. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. He will cause you to know these things. Why? Because His power is sufficient in our weakness. Ephesians 3, 20-21, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to what? According to His power at work within us. To Him be the glory forever and ever. So this church in Corinth was radically, radically different from the Church of Community Bible Church in 2023. And it was radically, radically identical in that it desperately needed to follow the Lord, to rely on His power, to submit to His authority, and to wield truth in this war. This has been our call from the beginning. This is what Paul reminds the church of then, is what God is reminding His church of today. And so we must be that church that approaches the conversation with the meekness of gentleness of Christ, that approaches the conversation with the boldness of Christ, that wields the weapons we've been given to destroy the strongholds we face. As we consider these things this week, let's look at some scripture. Let's look at more of this. Look at John 8 and John 14. If this still seems daunting to you, if this still seems intimidating, if this still seems overwhelming, consider John 8 and John 14. Even if you've read these chapters before, read them with a fresh set of eyes. Look at what Jesus says about himself. Look at what God reveals about his plan for his people. These two chapters are so beautiful as we know our Lord and as we desire to be like him. Apply the Acts model as we pray. If you need a refresher on that, A, adoration. How does this passage in 2 Corinthians, how did John 8 and John 14 lead you to praise God? Maybe we need to praise Him for the mind we've been given. Instead of complaining, instead of making jokes at our own expense, instead of belittling ourselves, maybe we need to praise God and recognize, no, He's actually given me an intellectual capacity to engage with these things. He's given me the understanding of the English language to listen, to read. He's given me literacy. He's given me ears to listen to the Bible on audio. 
How does this lead you to praise God? C, confess. How does this lead us to confess to the Lord? To say, Lord, I've neglected this. I've set this aside. I've allowed other people to take up the sword and to fight, and I've tried to just hang out in the back. Forgive me. T, thank, gratitude. How does this lead you to thank God? See, there's a difference between praising and thanking. Praising is praising God for who he is. Thanking him is for what he's done. So how does it lead you to do both? And then supplication, ask. Jesus says, ask. You don't have because you don't ask. So ask. You think God's not going to answer a prayer of, Lord, I want to glorify you with my life. Would you lead me deeper into truth so that I can wield it for you? Ask. Ask for understanding. Ask for drive. Ask for passion. Ask for these things. If you're feeling really crazy and fun, ask for opportunities to fight. Ask for opportunities to wade, in, or to wade into war and wield the sword. Knowing that you're following Jesus, knowing that you're following the Holy Spirit. And then as we personally reflect, once again, questions that nobody can answer for you but you. What are you doing as a soldier to increase in your effectiveness? What are you doing as a soldier to increase in your familiarity with the sword? What are you doing to ready yourself for battle? What are you doing to fight for ground? I've said this, I never get tired of saying this. I'm sorry if you've gotten tired of me saying this. I never get tired of saying this. Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock I will build my church on and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Gates are a defensive weapon. The church is meant to be on the attack. So as you consider this passage in 2 Corinthians, as you consider John 8 and John 14, as you consider this holy calling on our lives, ask yourself, what are you doing to batter down the gates? It's fun to be the church. It's a privilege to be the church. It's a joy and a blessing to be the church and engage in this war. So let's make sure we're doing it. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are worthy of our everything. God, you, you have won this war. Uh, apart from you, we are powerless. Apart from you, we are ineffectual. Apart from you, we are doomed. But Lord, if we take the shield of faith and we say we believe you when, we tell you when you tell us that we are not alone. We believe you when you say that you are with us, that you go before us, that you fight for us. We believe you when you say Fear not. We believe you when you say that you are victorious. And so we rejoice in that. We celebrate that. We are, we are constantly grateful for that. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us into truth, that you would remind us of what we've heard, you would remind us of what we've read, that you would use your people to fight in this war, that you would use your truth as only you can. We surrender to you. We line up under your authority. Lead your bride. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.